Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, Dressed listeners. Today's episode is about a topic long requested by our listeners. So, so long. (laughs) And long promised by us, because today we are talking about the history of corsets. But a typical history, this is not. Because today we are going to be talking about constructing the corset's history, or rather exploring the history of the corset's construction. So in other words, we'll be talking about the ways in which the corset's shape and form have changed throughout the course of its existence. Yes, and we could think of absolutely no better guest to follow this thread of the corset's history than the corset constructioning queen herself, Cynthia Secchi, because Cynthia is a corset maker, which is of course, not a profession you hear too, too much about today. And she is also the founder of Red Threaded, which is a world-renowned company specializing in making high-quality costumes, clothing, and perhaps most famously in the historical costuming theater and film communities, Red Threaded makes corsets and corsetry. So we are so pleased to have her join us today to share her expertise on the historic construction of one of the most iconic and perhaps controversial garments in the history of fashion. Cynthia, welcome to Dressed. Cynthia, welcome to Dressed. It's so great to see you and meet you in person or on Zoom. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So I'd love if we could actually start with the basics. What is a corset and what purpose did this garment or type of garment serve historically? So this is going to be incredibly broad strokes, but corsets are stiffened support garments that provide some amount of compression to the body, usually through lacing, and they also provide support and bust shaping and silhouette that changed with the fashions of the time. Women have been wearing them for hundreds of years. Uh, historically. They're not necessarily the uh, Scarlett O'Hara torture devices that we all think of now. (laughs) They really provided a basis for the fashions that went over top of them. In the 18th century, the term corset actually applied to a completely different garment. It seemed to apply to a lightly boned or unboned garment that was worn at home, kind of a you know, loungewear type item rather than the heavily boned, conical, rigid, structured stays that women were wearing under their gowns for day wear. In the early 1800s, that gets muddy because you start seeing a completely different silhouette in all aspects of women's dress. And so suddenly, the heavily boned stays are out of fashion. And the corset which is this sort of lightly boned or unboned garment, and stays sort of become one and the same in a way. Uh, You start seeing the term used interchangeably. I'm not sure when they stopped using the term stays completely. It seems to be in the mid-19th century when this hourglass shape really establishes itself as the 
overall silhouette that will change slightly, but continue on, honestly, really until now, more or less. Yeah, and that's. I think it's so interesting to learn about those distinctions too, because especially within the historical costuming community, you really need to know the difference between stays pre-19th century and corsets. People are really specific about that, but it's super fascinating. It's at one point they coexisted and then they kind of blended, as you mentioned. And I mean, you are arguably the corset queen, I would say. I mean, you have an international clientele. Your work is featured in films and television. And of course, the historical costuming community um, utilizes you. As your team so brilliantly demonstrates, corset making is a highly technical skill and craft. And as you mentioned, women have been wearing corsets for hundreds of years. What are you able to tell us about this profession historically? Oh, it's so fascinating because it's changed so much over time. Back in the 18th century, Again, speaking really broadly, uh, you know, because there are exceptions to every rule, as we know, studying fashion history, just when you think you have something figured out, you find an outlier and go, wait, what? But speaking broadly, stay making was a man's job. And that mostly comes from the fact that men were more involved in trades generally. And also the stay maker was working with really tough materials. So making stays in the 18th century, if you consider that most all of them were boned with whalebone, which is baleen, which comes in these large sort of strips that you have to cut and sand and shape and mold. It was a very involved sort of physical labor job and almost more like woodworking at that level than sewing because you had to actually shape every strip of baling for the stays and you're also stitching through you know four or five layers of really heavy stiff canvas by hand by hand everything <laughs> is sewn by hand labor was cheap the materials were more expensive and the the labor was difficult now, that's not to say that women weren't involved at all. There were women employed in staymaking workshops doing various things. But for the most part, in the 18th century, speaking broadly, men were dominating that trade. Now, here's an interesting little sort of side jaunt, because this is my favorite corset history sort of anecdote. Are you aware of the woven corsets in the mid-19th century? I am not, but I can't wait for you to tell me about them. (laughs) There was this little moment in corset history before the sewing machine. Okay, so everything is being stitched by hand up until this point, which is slow. Even the fastest hand stitcher, it's slow. They developed looms that could weave corsets in the three-dimensional shape, in the hourglass shape of the mid-19th century, And also include the bone casings woven right in and perhaps sometimes even insert the bones in place while weaving them. So these were large jacquard looms and there was a big factory of them in Haubach, Germany. I know about this because I visited this place during the um, Structuring Fashion Conference a couple of years ago. I was lucky enough to attend that and it is so cool. Unfortunately. We don't believe that any of these looms exist anymore. But you end up with a single layer, completely woven corset with no seams at all. Wow. It's wild. And so 
That was also a man's trade. So they had men working on the looms, just like men were often weavers historically for, for textiles. So then, and then this gets into some interesting topics about pay, <laughs> it was cheaper to have women do the edge finishing. So the only stitching that was done on these was hand whipping over the edge, maybe a bit of embroidery, the final finish details. And that was done as piecework in homes around the area. So women would take batches home and, and do that as piecework. But I find that so fascinating because woven corsets are this odd outlier. But then the sewing machine was invented. And suddenly woven corsets were not the cheapest method or fastest method anymore. And so they immediately fell out of fashion. So for a while there, they were actually the most common style of corset available. And then suddenly stitched corsets became the style once again. And at that point, you ended up with women doing the sewing for the most part, because that ties in with the Industrial Revolution, and you have women working in factories in general, and suddenly you have the girls at the machines, as described in accounts from the time. Yeah, this huge shift, right, with all this, you know, Industrial Revolution, all of this manufacturing, all of these once at-home industries or smaller industries becoming these massive scales. Um, and we know they abused labor, abused women labor. That's a whole nother podcast, but it's super interesting. And I had never heard of the woven corset. And maybe you have, do you have a picture of anything like that that we could share um, in accordance with this episode? Because that's fascinating. Yeah, I have some pictures from the museum, which I can send. There is a whole museum. If, if anyone listening to this happens to be in Germany, and is able to visit, I don't know what the situation is right now, of course, but go to Haubach, Germany, and visit their corset museum. It's called the Mieder Museum. It was all in German, and so I, I know I missed a lot of information, but just looking at all of the corsets on display was really interesting. And that company actually ended up becoming Triumph Lingerie, which still exists today. So that area has historically made lingerie and still does, which is interesting. That's super fascinating. Well, you've kind of already led me into my next question, which is about your research. Uh, your website reminds visitors that your projects are not average Halloween costumes, but rather, quote, truly investment pieces really built to last a lifetime. These are high quality pieces. And an incredible amount of research goes into the production of each and every corset or stays, depending on the era that you and your team produce. And like you said, you have a wide date range. I think right now it's 1690s to the 1910s. But I'd love if you could tell us more about what goes into your research process um, as you develop each of these different corsets. Yeah, it's different for each one a little bit because it depends on what sort of primary, secondary, you know, resources are available for that era. We all have access to the same books. So we're all looking at the same sort of basic diagrams or, or you know, recorded extant corsets. There's only so much left from history. Um, but I try to look at a combination of books like Corsets and Crenolins, Corset by Jill Salen, all of that, and sort of distill this commonalities between corsets from a particular era. What, what am I seeing? What does each one have in common? How does that affect the silhouette versus how am I also seeing, what am I also seeing in museum collections? So I do a lot of looking at images from museum collections 
I'm looking at seam lines, I'm looking at grain lines, all of those proportional things that that make the era's silhouette what it is, where, where the bones placed. And the drawn pattern diagrams in things like Jill Salen are great. Um, now we have Patterns of Fashion 5, which is a wonderful resource because that actually details 18th century stays. That book did not exist when I was working on my 18th century patterns. So now I'm kind of like, oh, I would do some things differently now if I was, <laughs> if I was developing them from scratch. But we have them in production, so that's a whole thing. But yeah, I look at a combination of, of books, you know, images from museums, if I can get my hands on actual extant garments, that's the best. You know, so I've studied the extant garments at the DAR in Washington, DC, and they have some lovely 18th century examples all the way up to 19th century. And my favorite set of stays that they have um, is a 1780s set, which has the lighter style of boning that you see in that period. You start seeing what, what we tend to refer to as half-boned stays. And they're shorter, and they're very similar to the pattern that I developed independently of them. So that was kind of a nice little confirmation of, oh, yes, that does kind of look like mine. But you're looking at all those different things. And then as far as developing the actual patterns, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll work with some of the diagrams that are already out there. Sometimes I'll just straight up draft it uh, or drape it on the form, which isn't exactly a historical way to go about it, but it is, it's a way that makes sense in my theatrical costume draping brain to achieve that result because I can look at a picture of a garment and kind of understand how those seam lines need to go and, and kind of work from there. Patterns did not always exist historically, too. So really, you are kind of drawing on a historical tradition of draping on, on dress forms, right? Once you have people's measurements and going from there. I mean, the history of pattern making, we did a whole episode on that, too, but it's super interesting. The books you referenced also, I believe, draw on extant garments, too, right? So they're actually like looking at extant garments and then breaking those down and recreating the patterns, um, something you also do. I think you have your own personal collection of historical corsets, too, if I'm not wrong. I do. I have a few. I started collecting them after the prices went up, which is unfortunate. If I could go back in time, I'd tell <laughs> high school Cynthia to you know, stop spending so much money on books and maybe buy some more extant corsets on eBay. But we have a few, including a really cool sport corselet that we just added to the collection. And I took a pattern directly off of that one. It's available to our Patreon subscribers. It's really interesting because it's only two pieces on each side. And it's extremely lightly boned, and it has a little bit of cording over the bust. And it's just this light, dainty little thing. And you look at it and you think, how could that possibly be uncomfortable? It's just it's so soft and, and light. And that's one of the uh, misconceptions I think people have about historical 19th century corsetry. It's all very lightweight, honestly. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about corset myth busting um, as we move on in this conversation. But first, I'd love if you could get a little more detailed about your process. For instance, the earliest stays you offer are based on styles worn during the 1690s, which I think is as far back as you go. How did you pick this period and how did you go about recreating the style of garment from start to finish? Yeah, it's interesting to try to decide how early to go or where to stop with the corset line. And I drew the line at 1690 because previous to that, 
According to current research, most of what you see is smooth covered stays. So this is that funny little period in fashion history where the boned bodice, as we tend to call it in theater, was actually historically accurate. So the structure was in the garment itself, in the bodice that you see, and then it's covered over with smooth fabric. That's pre-1700-ish. That's what you see in all the, you know, 1640s, 50s, whatever Dutch paintings you see that. It's part of your outer garment. Exactly. It's part of your outer garment. And then that changes and really never comes back. So I picked 1690s because that's about the time that you start seeing the mantua, which is fitted over top. And on a very practical level, that was the year that the favorite came out. And everyone (laughs) was bothering me for 1690s stays. (laughs) So I thought that, you know, previous to that, it wouldn't make that much sense for me to release like a 1640s stays because it's they really didn't exist in this context of what I make. You know, I'm not going to make full bodices for people as a line of corsetry. So I figured if I started with 1690s, that way people could make mantuas to go over top. You know, they could make a fancy stomacher and it kind of helps them get that silhouette and, and kicks it on over into the, about the 1720s or so. And to develop that pattern, I looked at there's a diagram in uh, Corsets and Crenolins of a set of stays that's about that era. There's also one in the book called Stays and Body Image in London, which is a really interesting sort of cultural deep dive into the stay making trade in London in the 18th century. And that has a diagram as well of stays from this period. And so I looked at those two. I also looked at a lot of just photos from museum collections. And then I kind of had to put all of that through the lens of how do I design a pattern that we can put into production and make at a reasonable cost? Because this is actually a very complicated period. It's heavily boned. The skirts or or tabs, as people tend to call them, are very long. And so that means more binding. You know, you have to bind around every one of those and every single tab you bind costs more to produce. So I had to kind of mix all of those things together and then come up with a rough pattern. At that point, once I have a rough draft, then I have to grade it and also pattern test it. So I test the fit on several different fit models in different sizes. So I usually just make mock-ups and test those. And then I develop our plus size range for it. All of our plus size patterns are different from our standard size patterns in that they often have more seaming. They often have more bones. Sometimes the shaping is different. It just depends on what's going to fit a plus size body better. You know, if we just kind of graded the same size up from extra small, you know, from a 22 waist to a 42 waist, you're going to end up with strange proportions. So I tend to start in the middle of my standard size block. So I'll start with like a medium and grade either direction from there. And then I'll establish the mid of our plus size range and grade up and down from there too. If our listeners are headed to your website, which I'm sure they are immediately, what advice do you have for them about how to pick out 
their size corset? We have a video on our size chart page that shows you how to measure. And then we have a little bit of info on that page about how to choose your size. But it's such a subjective thing, and it's actually kind of difficult to establish a size chart for corsetry because so much of it is dependent on your specific body and the way your flesh is distributed, how quote-unquote squishy you are. Two people can have the same measurements and have a completely different bone structure beneath those measurements, and so they'll corset very differently. So if you have any questions, you can email me. I'll help you out. Uh, I answer sizing questions all the time. And especially in the larger size range, again, speaking generally, you tend to have more compression available. You can lace the waist down more, like more inches than you usually can on smaller bodies, just because there is more to redistribute. Um, you know, I can't lace down as much as a, as a larger person. And Honestly, I, I love corseting larger bodies because you can get some awesome silhouettes and they look great. Yeah, and that leads me right into my next question because stays and corsets, as we've discussed, are quite literally the shape of fashion. You're molding your body with the corset to fit into these historical shapes of fashion. And they've served as one of the main foundations on which this outer silhouette of fashion is sculpted. As fashions evolved historically, so too did these foundation garments, as is evidenced by the variety of styles that you have on offer. So what, for instance, distinguishes the 1690s stays from those of, say, the 1750s, which is a really another popular period? That's such a great question. And I love comparing those two, because if you described those stays, like for a sketch artist or something, you would probably end up with the same thing, right? It's there's tabs at the waist. It's long. It's kind of a cone shape. But the 1690 stays come up much higher at the neck and over the shoulders. They have a more of an off-the-shoulder look, which is what was the, the fashion at the time. So they sit right on that outer shoulder bone with the shoulder straps. Whereas by the 1750s, fashions are are distinctly onto the shoulder. So the gowns are on the shoulder, the stays straps are on the shoulder. So that angle has changed and the neckline has dropped significantly. So there's about a two inch drop between our 1690s and our 1750s stays as far as where they hit at the bust line. And then they're also a little bit shorter by the, by the 1750s. So they don't come quite so long over the hip it's closer to the natural waist. The seam lines are actually somewhat similar because you still have these angled pieces in similar ways. And the bone placement is also fairly similar, but it's a lot about the lengths of the pieces, speaking generally. So stays underwent a dramatic transformation at the turn of the 18th century as fashions evolved from, you know, those wide panniers supported robes à la française, you know, of Marie Antoinette era to these Grecian Roman columnar gowns of the early 1800s, what we are now very familiar with from Bridgerton. However, this transformation did not happen overnight, but rather over decades. I'd love if you could tell us about your 1790s transition stays, which really kind of represent that transitional period. Yeah, that's such a weird moment in fashion history. Suddenly, the breasts are free for the first time in, you know, 200 years. <laughs> because before that, we were designing garments that were fairly flat across the front. Stays are, are straight up and down. 
you know, you don't see a natural breast shape for centuries, really. And suddenly women are, you know, throwing off their stays and they want to have a natural breast shape. So when I developed our 1790 stays, there are so many weird versions from this period in museum collections. You see little shorty ones with gathered cups. You see cups with springs in them to act as early elastic. You see long stays that are heavily boned that they've just sort of spliced gussets into in the front. You see women still wearing the old style way up in, you know, until later, because we all don't adopt styles at the same time. But I chose to kind of go in the middle of all of that. I had to, again, just like our 1690 stays, I had to think about what's producible for us. What's going to give women this sort of natural shape, but not quite as hoisted as the later Regency style? And what is kind of a distillation of all these different examples I'm seeing that are so different from each other in museums? Ours is closest to a set of stays at the Snows Hill in the UK. They have a set of stays that comes about to the waist and has bust gussets added in the front like ours. So then I thought, okay, well, how the heck am I going to develop this pattern? So I decided to just think like maybe I'm a stay maker in the 1790 and suddenly the women want this whole different shape and what am I going to do about it? So I took our 1780s stays pattern, I cut off the skirts and I spliced in a bus gusset, shortened it a little bit, tried it on and went, oh, that's it. <laughs> so our 1790s are extremely close to our 1780s stays in the under, like the underlying pattern. And now we're going to move into the aforementioned Regency Bridgerton era. <laughs> Because just as the popularity, as you mentioned, of the film The Favorite increased the historical costuming community's interest in the 1690s, so too did this wildly successful Netflix series called Bridgerton. I mean, it really inspired, I'm assuming, a host of new Regency-era converts wanting to create their own ethereal and peer gowns. And I'm sure there's people within the historical costuming community that already, you know, have participated in this era and are enjoying its resurgence and popularity. But I'd love if you could tell us about your Regency era offerings and what distinguishes these from previous decades in history, because they are quite distinct. Oh, my goodness. Bridgerton. You know, I haven't <laughs> actually watched it yet. I probably should. But yes, we've seen a huge increase in the interest in Regency costuming, which is so exciting because it's also a really great sort of gateway era. That's what I was going to say. It's like a good entry level. Yeah, the gowns are not that complicated. It's a little more accessible visually for a modern person. You can wear flats, just basic flat shoes with it. it it's a good gateway into the historical costume world. So I'm super excited that a Regency era show has taken off the way it has. So for Regency era, we have long stays, which are sort of the standard corset that you see or stays. This is when things are muddy, right? We're using both terms at this point, about 1820s. We have the long stays, which have bust gussets and hip gussets that provide shape. The rest of the corset is really just two pieces, well, three one front, two backs, 
and it's very simple and it provides a smooth support under your gown so your waistband will sit on on something smooth and and structural and it's also great for modern folks because the busk down the center front provides a lot of a reminder for your posture because i know i spend all my time either at a computer or a sewing machine and i have horrible posture so having a busk and full long stays really reminds you to stand up straight and and sort of affect that regency posture if you don't want all of that going on we also have our short stays which we only offer in sizes extra small to XXL. It's the only style we don't offer in plus sizing. And that's because we found that it tends to dig at the belly level when you cut it off at the underbust line. And it doesn't provide quite as much support to the bust. It's hard to get it right in larger sizing. And I wish we could offer it because I want to be size inclusive, but I also want to create a product that is comfortable for everyone and, and achieves the results they're looking for. So I always recommend long stays um, for, for ladies who want more support. But short stays are great if you're just looking for a little bit of that Regency breast lift without going all in on the full thing. Or if you're going to the Jane Austen Festival in the summer and it's 105 degrees. <laughs> You can use our 1790s stays through Regency, kind of depending on your own body. I have some clients who wear the 1790s all through Regency and they look awesome in it and it works. It really just sort of depends on your exact shape and proportions. And then also on that note, we have 1830s stays. And the difference between the 1830s stays and the Regency stays is that they're curvier through the waist. 1830s, you start seeing that waistline drop from the underbust towards the waist. And you also concurrently see corsets becoming more hourglassy. So the 1830s stays are similar, but they're just a little curvier and shapely. So if you happen to be a little curvier and shapely already, our 1830s stays might be a good choice for you for Regency because they're not quite as columnar and they're a little curvier. So if someone's, you know, I recommend depending on someone's measurements, sometimes I'll actually recommend that they try 1830s for Regency. And just hitting on a couple of myth-busting things while we're in Regency era, in Bridgerton, of course, one of the very first scenes is tight lacing in a Bridgerton era, which is, we know, Regency, when really that corseted figure is not really forming the silhouette of the outer silhouette of fashion. And then she's not wearing a chemise, but that's another story. And I feel like one of the myths of this era is that these corsets, or stays, weren't boned. But I think I, I was reading through your blog post, you have a wonderful blog, that there are there's kind of a combination of like cording and stiff fabrics and boning that went into these corsets, or stays. Yes. The ones that I've looked at in person, primarily at the DAR in DC, they have a number of stays from the 1820s to the 1830s. They all had a few bones, usually at the side seam, maybe side front, side back, and then along the boning line. The rest of the structure is provided by cording, and the fabrics are thinner than what we have today. We really just don't have the same fabric that they had at the time. Our textile industry is not the same. So the fabrics that I'm working with tend to be chunkier than what would have been available to me at the time, which is unfortunate, but that is what it is. 
And so, yeah, I, I do see bones. You don't see bones in all of them, but most of them have at least a couple just to keep that vertical tension. And then the rest of the structure is through cording. For our 1820s and 1830s stays, we do use boning in those locations and we don't use cording. And that's 100% just a cost issue. We do offer fancier made-to-order stays in our atelier line where we do all the fancy cording. We just can't do that for our standard liner. Nobody would buy them. (laughs) So really, I mean, when you're comparing these to your 1750s corsets and prior, which are heavily boned, it really must be remarkable to see the difference. And it is kind of like this brief pocket of period because as we know, as we move into the 19th century, the corset becomes a corset and it becomes a lot more boned again. You've mentioned the Jane Austen Festival a couple different times throughout this interview. And I'd love to hear more about how pre and post pandemic, of course, you sell your wares because you can be found at any number of these events and festivals. And I'd love to hear more about the Jane Austen event in particular. Yeah, back in the before times, (laughs) I traveled a lot. We did something like 10 business trips in 2019, which was a lot. I used to do these trunk shows and they were so much fun. You know, we would set up all of our corsets, our fit samples, and then have a guest list and people would sign up for fitting times and come in and try stuff on. And it's great. And we'll do those again in the future. Right now, we can't do them, obviously. But um, events like the Jane Austen Festival are lovely because you get to just set up all of your wares and people could come in and try things on in your booth and buy corsets right there. The tricky part with a business model like this is that I have to have fit samples of everything for people to try on, right? So if I'm going to do an event like Costume College, we did that in 2019 for the first time, what I didn't realize would be the last time for a while. And that was amazing because it's 600 plus costumers in one hotel. And I took two of my teammates because I knew we would need to be all hands on deck. And two of us fit corsets the whole time. We didn't stop for three days. Our hands basically fell off. We got blisters after the first day. (laughs) It was wild. And then our third, she just ran transactions the whole time. And it's, it's a joy to see that many people try on corsets and all have a good time about it. They're all excited And I love what I call the mirror moment when I tend to fit people away from the mirror and then I'll turn them towards the mirror. And then they go, oh, wow. And they have this little moment looking at themselves and and feeling good about what they're seeing. And I love that. But we'll do that again in the future. Thankfully, we have the internet. So, you know, we sell online and we offer free returns and exchanges in the US too, just to make this simpler because buying a corset online is very complicated. And it's, you know, the likelihood that it won't fit is high because it's such a specific garment. Um, So we try to make that as simple as possible for people. Well, we look forward to the future and meeting you and being fit in person. I, for one, will be taking you up on that when we are living in a different time. But for now, we're just going to have to listen to this conversation and check out all your wonderful offerings online. That leads me into my final question. Previously this season, we had Jessica Pusher on. She's the collections manager of the Chicago History Museum. You two have actually connected because she posted 
the Worth Ironwork gown. And I mean, I'm sure people started tagging you immediately because I mentioned earlier, you are a historical costumer. You recreated the Met's white and black version of this Worth Ironwork gown. It is the one of the most beautiful dresses I've ever seen. I think you're in front of... And are you at the Musée d'Orsay modeling it in front of the clock tower? I'm actually... I'm at the clock tower in Denver, Colorado. They have one. Well, there you go. Either way, it's transformative. It is so beautiful. I love if you could tell us a little bit more about your experience as a historical costume. What inspires you to create different eras? And how is that directly translated into your business and and what you do professionally? Well, I got into historical costuming mostly because I was interested in the making. I don't know if you can tell from this whole conversation, but I like the making part, the finding out how to make it and then the actual making it, not the wearing it as much. I like to say that there are several different facets to this hobby and you can like all of them or only some of them and that's okay. You know, there's the making the clothes. That's really fascinating to some people. There's the researching the clothes. Some people really love designing the clothes. And then some people love wearing the clothes. And you can like all of those things, but you don't have to like all of those things. But I do enjoy dressing up on occasion. It is quite fun to literally put on the clothes of the past and feel what it was like and go through that experience. And so the Worth Gown Project specifically was a personal challenge to myself I hadn't actually dressed up in about seven years at that point because I'd been too busy in college and then with the early days of the business. And I was going to go to costume college for the first time in years. And I thought, well, I should make something really cool. What would be the hardest dress (laughs) to make? And one day I went, oh, shoot, I know what it is. I guess I'm making the ironwork gown. So that was the the hard part of that project, honestly, once I determined the motif was just the physical strenuousness of doing all of the applique. And I also put it off to the last minute. And so it was it was a lot of work. But so I only dress up for certain events and it's fun when I do, but I will say it's so funny because I sell corsets and I, you know, espouse this whole world of historical corset and costume making, but I'm usually the first person out of costume at events. It's become a bit of a joke amongst me and my friends. I'm always the first person out of costume because I think at the end of the day, I'm really just a theater tech kid who wants to help other people look good and doesn't necessarily need to be the center of all of the attention, if that makes sense. Cynthia, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a pleasure. I would actually love to ask you if you have any advice for people like myself. I've said this to all of my historical costuming guests. How do you get into this? What's a good entry point? Is it getting yourself a Bridgerton short stay draping or making your first on pier gown based on a pattern? What's a good entry level to get into what you do or what your customers do? What part excites you the most? And do that. Find something exciting and just go for it. What's the worst that can happen? It's just fabric. It's okay. You know, have fun. You do want to get the undergarments right if you're going to do historical dress or or whatever, but 
you know, just pick what excites you. You don't have to start in any specific place, I don't think. I started with like a Tudor gown, which was crazy for a teenager. I was like, I'm going to make a velvet Tudor gown and I'm going to figure out how to do it. So just, just jump in. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. So what do you say, Cass? Will you be jumping into the historical costuming community? (laughs) I mean, I know I've been saying this for years on this podcast at this point, but yes, that is the plan. It's just so intimidating. My sister, Haley, and my dream, as you know, April, has always been to dress a la Marie Antoinette. But something tells me that that is less entry level. So we might be starting at, say, the Regency, aka Bridgerton era. But I can tell you this. If and when I start, it will be with a foundation undergarment from Cynthia and Red Threaded. And dress listeners, you can find their full range of offerings at redthreaded.com. Yeah, and speaking of full range of offerings, we did not, in fact, cover the full range of Red Threaded's offerings on today's episode because their course of offerings extend into the Victorian, also the Edwardian eras. So you will just have to tune in on Thursday to learn more about that because Cass and Cynthia will be discussing not only the corsetry of these eras, but also these eras' many corset myths. For instance, did women really remove their ribs to create smaller waistlines? How common was tight lacing anyways? And so much more. So we do hope you enjoyed going behind the scenes of the corset's construction throughout history on this week's episode. And if you want to learn more about Cynthia's work or are interested in purchasing a corset yourself, be sure to head over to redthreaded.com where you will find not only Cynthia's current corset offerings, but also instructional videos about how to find the right corset for your body size, as well as Cynthia's fabulous blog and then the list of the company's events. So be sure and also follow along on Red Threaded's Instagram at redthreaded. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider constructing the history of the items in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you'll find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform, a choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.